Well, good morning again. Thank you guys for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into this space. I've not had the opportunity to meet you. My name is Jamie. It's my joy to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. For those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, wherever you happen uh, to be. And we know these, again, are interesting times to be gathering amidst everything. So just know we're continuing to be praying for you all and safety and even those, obviously, within our church that work in the the medical professions. And so thank you for your tireless uh, service as well. Now, this morning, um, I get the privilege of starting a new old series. And here's what I mean by that. This series is called On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And it's new in the sense that, hey, it's a new year and we're getting back into this. But it's old for us in the sense that back in 2018, if you can remember that far ago, this is pre-pandemic, right? Remember those, those days? Uh, we began this series and we started it in January of 2018 with a plan to revisit it each year because this idea of praying in alignment with the Lord Jesus who taught us to pray, right? So in the Lord's Prayer, we read these words, we pray these words, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to start each year by sort of allowing that to focus us to center us, to, to give us this fresh reminder again and again. What is it that the Lord calls us to? And what would it look like to see the Lord's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? And so we did that in 2018 and 2019 and 2020. And we actually last year, because honestly there were things in here that we addressed earlier in the year in 2021, some things that we needed to, to dive into. We took a, a break from the series, but these these thoughts and these the heartbeat of this has never been far from us, and we want to return to that this morning and spend the next four weeks in this and asking what would it look like to see this prayer of Jesus be answered? What is our role to play? And we see the ways that this gets worked out through God's call to justice, to righteousness. And even using those terms, that can call to mind a lot of different thoughts and opinions and interpretations. And so we want to continue to just go back. Like, what do the scriptures say about these things? And how does this prayer affect very pertinent things in our culture and what we're called to as, as the church? And so over the next few weeks, here's kind of the itinerary. Here's what we're going to be in. This morning, we're going to start in Jesus's prayer, the Lord's prayer, and looking at his prayer for justice, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll look at justice and the sanctity of life. We'll look at justice and racial reconciliation, and we will conclude the series by looking at justice and admissions, evangelism, church planning. In fact, we have a great update to be bringing you um, at that Sunday as well. So that's sort of where we are heading. But to get going in what this whole series is anchored in is this prayer. And I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer, but my hope and intention and prayer for this is that we would embody this prayer, that we would regularly be praying this, that we would be asking the Lord to be at work. And so as we get into it this morning, if you've got a Bible, I invite you to start in Matthew chapter 6. You also can go to cplife.church on your phone or device and you will see something that says sermon notes there. If you click that, that'll bring up the text, things that I'm putting up on the slides this morning. There's space to follow along, to take notes, and all of that. But we want to start by looking at this prayer of Jesus, and then we'll kind of zero in on verse 10. But this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, remembering the context that Jesus has been asked by his disciples, Lord, like, how should we pray? Will you teach us to pray? And I love that these folks that were traveling with Jesus that had been in and around, not only Jesus, but just religious upbringing. It gets confusing sometimes. How should we pray? And Jesus gives this, this model, this template, this encouragement. 
hey, pray in these ways. And so let me read the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Jesus says this, Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, what's so interesting in this is Jesus teaches us to pray, as he teaches the disciples. Let's just start how it begins, right? It says our Father. And so there's this direction of our, like, our attention, our energy, our focus to God himself. It starts there. Our Father who is in heaven, right? We're used to maybe saying hallowed be your name or the translation I read. Your name be honored as holy. There's this call to worship. That's what we've been created for. And so it starts there, it redirects our hearts. My hope is in this series, even as we get into some particular topics and, and things that are not easy to talk about, that it would result in more worship. I believe this is what we need as a church, this is what I need, it's what you need. We need more worship of God. And so the prayer here starts, our Father in heaven, like hallowed be your name. I wanna want worship you, thank you for who you are. And we thank him because we can actually call him Father. Like we have access to him. But did you notice the communal language that's being used? It's not my father who is in heaven, though one can certainly pray that. If you are in Christ, it means he, now, like you have God the Father, he's your father. But it's an invitation to a community. It's our father who is in heaven, right? Then he tells us to pray, not that our kingdom would come or my will would be done, but your kingdom. And then, again, notice the communal language. Give us today our daily bread. It's not a prayer, give me my daily bread, though it's not wrong to pray for that, but rather it's us together. We as the church need to be praying together. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not bring us into temptation. But please, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. And so right away, as we see, pushes against this hyper-individualistic culture that we live in. Like I can take the Lord's prayer and make it a me prayer, but the focus is Jesus and his kingdom and his story and how our stories find significance as they get connected to him. I read a book a couple years ago by Amy Julia Becker. She wrote this book called White Picket Fences, and she comments on the Lord's Prayer, and she says this, Jesus instructs us to pray very differently. His prayer includes me, but it is so much bigger than me. Give us, all of us. I'm not just praying for what I need. My relationship with God isn't just about me and my family. It's about entering into the needs of others and imploring for all of us. I see my own self-centeredness. I see that my reluctance in prayer isn't just about boredom or hunger or futility. It is also about my own unwillingness to acknowledge and respond to the needs of my brothers and sisters in this world. Like this prayer focuses us in worship of God and it reorients us as well to the need of others. We are to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this prayer then, if we're to take this seriously, is saying, I can have my plans and ambitions for my life and you can have them for your life, but the call is never for our kingdom to be built, but rather that the Lord's kingdom would be built. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth, but as it is in heaven, where things are 
as God intends it to be. If we were to, you know, just go back a couple chapters in Matthew, we see something that ties directly to verse 10. So this is kind of our anchor verse out of this prayer for this series, that we want to see the Lord's kingdom come, that his will would be done. And we're going to explore this morning, what is the Lord's will? What does that actually mean? What does that entail? And what would it look like to see that break in, the heavenly realm transforming this earthly realm to look more and more like heaven? And so if we were to go back just a couple of chapters, as Jesus begins his public ministry, he's been baptized in Matthew chapter 3. He is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy, and he combats the enemy with the word of God. He trusts in his father. He doesn't give in, all right? He doesn't acquiesce. He doesn't bow down. He continues to do the Lord's will. He's completely faithful to his father, and then Jesus sets out. And he begins to proclaim. In Matthew 4, 17, it tells us how he started his public ministry. What are the very first words that are recorded? If you were to think about, all right, this is your big moment, right? What are the first words? They're loaded then with significance. Jesus was very intentional in what he said. And so he shows up on the scene and it says this. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Do you want to know what is on Jesus' mind here? He says, repent. Well, why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. To repent means you've been moving in a particular direction, and the call now is to move in a new direction. He invites us. He is wooing us. He's calling us. And he's saying, you've been pursuing the kingdom of self. You've been pursuing the kingdom of ritual and religious observation in hopes that you might be accepted. But there's this beautiful way that I want to invite you into to repent of trusting in yourselves and now to trust in me, And he says, the kingdom of heaven, then, is at hand. Like, it's here. The kingdom of light is pushing back the kingdom of darkness. It's not just someday off in the future. Like, it starts right here, right now, Jesus is declaring. For 2,000 years, this has been playing out. Did you notice what Jesus doesn't say, though? He doesn't come on the scene and say, repent and invite me into your heart. Now, there is... No issue with praying to invite Jesus into your heart. We celebrate that. We want people to trust in the finished work of Jesus. But may I put before you, when Jesus comes on the scene, his work includes our personal salvation. But that's not the end goal. Like, that's not the only thing. It's part of this work that he's doing, of this restoration of all things. It's about the kingdom of God. Hear these words by um, uh, author, philosopher, professor named Cornelius Planninga. He wrote a book a number of years ago called Engaging God's World, and he says this, if all has been created good and all has been corrupted, then all must be redeemed. God isn't content to save souls. God wants to save bodies too. God isn't content to save human beings and their individual activities. God wants to save social systems and economic structures too. So if the management labor structure contains built-in antagonism, then it needs to be redeemed. If the healthcare delivery system reaches only the well-to-do, then it needs to be reformed. The same goes for hostile relationships of race and gender or class. He says everything corrupt needs to be redeemed, and that includes the whole natural world, which both sings and groans. The whole natural world in all its glory and pain needs the redemption that will bring shalom, this peace of God. 
The world isn't divided into a sacred realm and a secular realm with redemptive activity confined to the sacred zone. No, the whole world belongs to God. The whole world has fallen and the whole world needs to be redeemed. Now the pressure's off. That is not our call to bring about ultimate redemption. But the invitation is there by Jesus who is in the business of redeeming all things that if he has rescued you, if you have prayed to Submit to Jesus' lordship, and you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus. So you can rest in that. You now get to be a person that gets to participate in this kingdom work, and God cares about it all. So I hope you're not overwhelmed with that quote. Rather, I hope you're like, oh, I can't wait for Monday, which is probably not how most of us think, right? Like, oh, I gotta go back the Monday. But the reality is your work matters, your school matters, the sports team you're on matters, the club you're part of matters, your retirement matters, the work that you're doing matters, whether you get paid for it or not. Like God is in the business of using you and me as the church to bring about flourishing and wholeness and beauty that more and more people might delight, not just in this world, but ultimately to delight in God. And so when we pray the Lord's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we're talking about. How do we see this then play out? Maybe a question to ask yourself that could help us orient this whole series. What does it look like for Jesus' prayer to get answered? What does it specifically look like to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And so to help us answer that, I want to go to an Old Testament book, the book of Amos, all right? So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Again, it's in the, the sermon notes as well. But I believe a way to think about this is that God has given us some pursuits. If we're going to see the kingdom advance, if we're going to see the Lord's will being done here on earth as it is in heaven, okay, well, what, what does the heavenly realm look like? like what is, how is that described and what should be our pursuits and Amos chapter 5 beautifully lays out what I'll put before you are two pursuits that if we as a church take seriously and engage in these, we will see God's kingdom advance. We'll see this earthly realm reflecting more and more the beauty that God desires for it. And so in Amos chapter 5, we'll look at verse 24 and then we'll look at some of the preceding verses. But it says this, what are the pursuits? All right, he says this, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. See the words on the screen again here, like justice, so that's the first word, the first pursuit we'll look at, all right? Let it flow like water and righteousness, let it flow like an unfailing stream. Now, Here in Florida, we have no lack of water. There are rivers and lakes and ponds, all right, and weird things that live in all of them, and the ocean, and and all of that. Like, there is an abundance, a super abundance of water literally all around us most of the time. But for the people of Israel, the people that would have heard these words from Amos the prophet, who, just as an aside, he's introduced as this shepherd from Tekoa. This means he was just a regular dude minding his business, breeding sheep, shepherding, doing this work, and the Lord called him to go and prophesy to the northern tribes of Israel, to the 10 tribes. And we'll look at that more closely in a moment. And it's just this reminder again and again and again, God uses the weak, 
the culturally what we would deem insignificant, the person that doesn't have this super impressive resume. He's just out doing his thing, and the Lord's like, that's the guy. I'm going to send you. Let that be an encouragement, even in what we're reading here, that the person declaring these words, speaking the words of God, helping to bring about the flourishing of God's kingdom is just a regular dude. And so he speaks these words. It says, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And so as we think then about water, and yes, we're surrounded by it, but that time and that place where Amos would have lived and where he would have spoken the, these words, it's dry. It's desert most of the time. That what would happen, you have what's referred to as the wadis, W-A-D-I, and what would take place in this dry and barren land. Every once in a while, there were sort of these, these rains that would fall and sort of like almost like a flash flood that would happen. And these ravines and these sort of paths, so to speak, would begin to be filled with water. And for a time, they would flow like rivers, like this rushing water, something that might look like this. But then eventually it would dry up. And so here's the interesting thing with this imagery. God communicating through a servant is saying, hey, it's not to be this every now and again when the circumstances just you know, line up correctly, all right, and everything comes together and the water falls and then it, it rushes around. But he's saying, no. God's call to justice and righteousness is to flow like streams. It's not meant to just be here for a season. Let's put it in our context, right? As we love and serve and care for what God cares about, the call is not, cool, yep, I helped somebody out at Christmas, all right? That's awesome. But if the mindset is, yeah, I'll get back to caring about people like when next Christmas rolls around and the church offers something to do, we have missed it then it is not like an unfailing stream and this water that's constantly flowing. The call is for us as the church, what would it look like to see justice and righteousness flow, this ongoing stream? So we wanna look at this. Now, if you've been part of Crosspoint in this series before, you know there's a word that comes up here that we'll talk about again because I think we gotta keep coming back to it. We wanna help unpack this and explore this and and see what does God, what is God calling us to? There's honestly part of me that back in 2018 is probably very naive. I was like, okay, we'll, we'll do this. I don't know. I mean, maybe some of these top, maybe some of the things will change. Maybe in a couple of years, we'll have different topics to look at. And now we hear are in 2022. It's like, oh, we need these things more than ever. I'll, I'll say it for me. I need this series more than ever. I need to be reminded about God's heart. God's intentions, how God empowers us as his church, what God invites us into. And so in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, when it says, but let justice flow, the word there, this Hebrew word, mishpat, all right? It's fun to say. Let's say it together. One, two, three. Mishpat. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. One, two, three. Mishpat, all right? Mishpat means justice. Now, in our modern day sort of understanding of this, we tend to think, oh, yep, this person, maybe they committed a crime, something happened, let's bring this sort of rectifying justice to it. Let's make sure that they get punished, things get taken care of, people get compensated for maybe something that was stolen from them, and it includes that. There are lots and lots of instructions in the scriptures about how that sort of mishpat can take place. But friends, it goes way beyond that. When the Bible talks about mishpat, there's this retributive aspect of it, but there's also this restorative aspect to it. 
It means this, that we should be intentionally seeking. How do we bring, mishpat means a right ordering. So let's find the things that are out of order, they're disordered, they're broken, they're chaotic, and how can we as the church enter into those spaces to see the waters of justice flow, to see mishpat, to see a right ordering of things. I mean, God himself says, this is what he cares about. I'll read Psalm 146, but you literally, just open your Bible, all right, and you start reading through, you will see this call, you'll see this word for justice over and over and over again. This word mishpat. Psalm 146, verses seven to nine, says, he, this is the Lord, he executes mishpat, or justice, for what? For the oppressed, begins to describe this. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant, sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Over and over again in the scriptures, it tells us that God even calls himself, he identifies himself so closely with those, the orphan, the widow, the overlooked, the marginalized. Like, he's like, these, these are my people. I identify with them. Like, you imagine getting introduced to, like, a new group of people, or maybe you have a speech to give, and somebody's got to give a little bio on you to so-and-so come up on stage, and they would tend to tell, like, what are you identified with? What's your work? What's that? And the way God over and over and over again chooses to identify himself is what, throughout the scriptures, is referred to as, like, this, this quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the poor, like, he identifies so closely. And with this then, it's not viewed as charity. We tend to think of justice and like, oh, okay, well, let me help bring some of this, like sort of a charity. Hey, every now and again, I'll engage in that. The way the Bible talks about mishpat, I put before you is this. It's not optional. It actually speaks of a God-given right. It means every single person, every image bearer of God is entitled to mishpat, now, I understand that in the world there can be sort of unhealthy entitlement, but we're talking about like biblically-based like Jesus entitlement, meaning, meaning this, that there is a call to right ordering. There's a call to say, oh, my brother or sister, Jesus said, I'm to love you as I love myself. Well, I go to lots of effort to make sure that my life is as orderly as possible. And God is not knocking that. He's not saying neglect yourself, but rather he's saying, Will you help make your neighbor's life as much of a delight as your own? Like, when that mindset begins to hit us, we're starting to get at what Mishpat is about. We're starting to get at the biblical idea of justice, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This right ordering of things. What's fascinating, go and read Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses three, three to four. You might have it memorized, but if case not, let me read it. And it says this, this shall be... The priests do. That word is mishpat. This shall be the priest's justice. It's the person there sort of working for the Lord, right? Like, what, okay, what's the priest do? Well, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. It's talking about the compensation package, all right, for the priest. And the word that's used there for do, like, what are the wages? It's mishpat. It's saying, like, this is what this person's right is. Now, I'm glad to see things have changed over the years. You know, I come home, and my wife's like, oh, did you get paid? Yeah, I got a shoulder and two cheeks and the stomach, right? Like, we might take them. 
the wine that's in there. But other than that, I'm like, I don't know what to do with the rest of this stuff. But the call here is, hey, this is a right. Proverbs 31, eight to nine, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I'll be honest with you, I don't think of it that way. I think of things very much like in an optional sense. And so, so much of this, again, there's an aspirational aspect to this. It's not, it's not earning. It's not, you need to do this so that God will love you. If you're in Christ, he loves you. He's crazy about you. He's just saying, there's joy to be found in seeing the kingdom advance. And the way the kingdom advances is for God's people to start to sort of figure out, like, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like? That means to, to see the streams of justice flow, mishpat, like a right ordering. And then related with that, it speaks of this righteousness. Now, the word there is tzedakah, all right? It means righteousness. And this has very, like, relational, social connotations to it. Like, it is fair then, in the sense, I know it's misinterpreted, misapplied oftentimes when we talk about social justice, but the reality is that is what the Bible speaks of because we're talking about justice being done to fellow image bearers. So there's a social, there's a communal aspect to it. And so Sedekah speaks of righteousness. But here are these words from Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice. He says this, when most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think of it in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, Sedekah refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts, conducts all relationships in, a family, in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. And throughout the Bible, you find these things paired together like we do in Amos 5. Justice and righteousness. The big idea here is this. You think about how Keller describes it. Fairness, generosity, and equity. If you and I viewed people and gave them their rights, so to speak, viewed them as fellow image bearers of God. we so caught up in the grace that we've received that we're not looking down our nose at anybody, that we don't look at anybody and be like, well, you got yourself in this mess, you gotta pull yourself out, because listen, the mess I got myself into, as I was dead in my sin and trespasses, and God breathed new life into me. So when we keep coming back to that, suddenly there's nobody that we can look down our noses at, because everybody is in need of grace, just like I am. And so what it begins to do is it awakens us, and then we begin to live this way. So the, the idea is this. Mishpat's needed because Sedekah doesn't actually happen the way that it's called, that we're called to. If we lived with this sort of righteousness, this right relationships with God and then with other people, well, things would just happen. There would be no need for like this justice in the sense of like repairing things and rightly ordering things because things would flourish as God intends. And so when Jesus says, hey, I want to invite you to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think these are two pursuits that the Bible talks about over and over again, that we be people of justice and righteousness. And then imagine the change that would happen. It's possible, because my mindset goes to this quite often, that we can look out over sort of the cultural landscape and we can feel the, the pain and just the frustration and the confusion even of just that's been heightened even in the last couple of years and think, man, even as the church, like 
I don't know how we can make a difference. Um, maybe we lament that the church just sort of lost any sort of like maybe influence or status in, in the culture, right? Uh, maybe we can look at, maybe we feel almost like sheepish, kind of embarrassed to even be identified as a follower of Christ so that you go to church and be like, oh, people still do that? Really? Is that still happening? Right? Like that might be your mindset. It could be my mindset. But let me put before you this, that the church has thrived when it's been on the underside of power, when it's been overlooked and neglected or even persecuted. The church gets itself in trouble when we try and align ourselves and try and have power and influence, the calling is to be just submissive to Christ, to see the servant nature of Christ, to wash people's feet, to love and care. And then God in his grace, so that he gets all the glory, brings about transformation. Like the movement that happened, you go and study church history, you will see time and time again that it's in the times of persecution and confusion and the culture just seems like it's so, it's not even indifferent to Christianity, like it's antagonistic to Christianity. It's actively against Christianity. And if you're like, oh, I wonder where the culture's heading, that's where it's heading. But we don't say that as fearful people or to judge that. We actually should be salivating a bit, weirdly. Like, oh, I wonder what God's up to. What is God gonna do in our time and our place? Might God make himself known in ways that we haven't seen in a long, long time because suddenly we don't have the influence and the power that we once did and praise God for that. This is what happened in the Roman Empire. There's an emperor by the name of Julian and he was writing a letter literally to like what would be like a coworker of his. He's the most powerful man in the land and what is driving him absolutely nuts is that this Christian movement, these Jesus people keep showing up everywhere. Now they're marginalized, they're persecuted, they've got no status, they've got no clout, they've got no 501c3 and taxes exempt status. They don't have any of that. But then stop the forward movement of the gospel. Hear the words that he writes. Emperor Julian, he's referred to as Julian the Apostate. Maybe not a name you want to go for, but anyway, Emperor Julian. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans, this is a derogatory way of referring to Christians. These impious Galileans, they provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. This is what characterized the early church. You want to know why the church grew? You want to know why it was so confounding? It didn't have any influence. It didn't have any power or money or clout or any of that. But it had the gospel of Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they went and loved and served. And they didn't just love their own. They didn't just love the people that believed what they believed or looked like them or were in the same socioeconomic bracket, right, or of the same race or voted the same. They served everybody. Want to see the church flourish? Want to see the kingdom of heaven advance? What would it look like for us to adopt that sort of mindset? I mean, it's what Julian is referring to, it's the Christians that literally started what have become known as like modern day, like adoption agencies. You want to know how adoption worked back then? That the Romans would be like, oh, I wanted a son. I don't know what to do with this daughter. I don't want it. They would throw her on the trash heap. Oh, this child was born with some sort of birth defect. That's not what we want. We'll try again. And they would throw it on the trash heap. And the Christians would go out and say, that's an image bearer laying right there. How dare you do that? And rather than judge them and condemn them, they would just take the child in and they would raise it as their own. Like this was the sort of movement. And we talk about like church and if it can seem to sort of blase and like a whatever. This is the movement of God's people down through history. 
Now, I wish we could just say, cool, like, yeah, this has been happening. We never get derailed from that. But for just a moment, we need to look at what Amos says prior to this call of these two pursuits. So look with me at verses 18 to 23. He begins to pronounce these woes, all right? And it's the Lord pronouncing it. I don't think Amos was excited to go and declare this to these people. But at the end of the day, he's being obedient to the Lord. 18 says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home, he rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light? So let's stop right there for just a moment. It's wondering, like, what in the world's happening? A couple things contextually that'll be helpful to know. At this point, the world superpower is Assyria, but for the time being, they're a bit disinterested in Israel. They're not actually paying attention to them. And so they have relative peace in the land, and Israel has a king that's been in power for quite a long while, so there's government stability. The government's in a relatively good place, and the economy is booming. From the world's perspective, everything is going great. Assyria's not a threat the way that they thought it might be. And so the Israelites have begun to have this mindset that they're longing for the day of the Lord. They're longing for God to show up. And, and Amos is like, oh, my friends, I don't think you really want that because I don't think you really understand the predicament that you're in. And so he begins to say, if the day of the Lord happened, it's not going to be like light. It's going to be like darkness. He's like, are you sure you really want this? Did, did you hear the interesting progression? Right, in case you missed it. Lion, bear, snake, all right? Think about this for a moment. All right, just imagine, you're, here's how your day goes. You're out for a walk, all right? You're minding your own business, and a lion comes out of nowhere. In some way, somehow, all right, you outrun the lion. You gotta be feeling pretty good about yourself. Only to round the bend, around the corner, and there's a bear. In some way, somehow, you escape the bear, and you make it home and you're getting your phone out because this needs to be on TikTok or something, right? And so you're getting ready to document it some way, somehow, only to like relax for a moment, lean against the wall and to have a snake jump out and bite you and then you're dead. Like what Amos is saying is like, my friends, you're literally saying this is what you want to happen. It's like, it is not going to go well for you. You're under threat. It's all around you. And the reason for this there's nothing wrong that they're prosperous. It's how they've become prosperous and their reliance on themselves in pursuit of the kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God. The issue that we see, all right, goes back if we read verse 11 of chapter 5. We went back just a little bit. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, you exact a grain tax from him. You will never live in the house of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards that you have planted. Verse 12. For I know your crimes are many, your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous to take a bribe and deprive the poor of mishpat, of justice at the city gate. Just saying, listen, you have been blessed with so much and you're compounding that wealth by acts of injustice. You're doing it on the backs of the poor and the marginalized rather than seeking to bring their rights to bear. You're ignoring them, you're trampling upon them, and you've become so caught up. Because what they're excited about, it says they're not indifferent to the day of the Lord. They're like actively praying and longing for it. Because they're like, there's these evil people, Lord, go get them. 
smite Assyria, get them out of here. And the Lord in his kindness through his prophet Amos is saying, oh, my friends, yes, Assyria's got their own sin issue, but look in the mirror. Look what you're doing. You, you so sure you want the day of the Lord to come right now with what you're doing? He's calling them to say, pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to the things that you're neglecting. Pay attention. And then 21 to 23, he says this, and here's kind of the question. Will we repent or will we carry on with our religious charades? Hear the Lord's words. He says, verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. For like, oh, you know, that's kind of strong language. I dislike. No, the Lord says I hate, all right? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Imagine the Lord showing up here and being like, this reeks. I cannot even stand to be in here. That's what he's communicating. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings or of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. They are doing all the right religious things. Making the sacrifices. They're going to church. They're probably even serving. They're probably even engaged in some acts of charity. But they are not in pursuit of God's kingdom. They have lost sight of how deeply they are lost. They're thinking the problem's out there, and they've forgotten that it's in here. The words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn come to mind where he says this, the line separating good and evil, it passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. So we get into this, and there's a heaviness in this. It's not meant to beat us down and guilt us and, and, or think we got to now go like love and serve to like earn anything. It's just this reminder. We have what we have by the grace of God. And the evil, like it's in my heart. There, every inclination of my heart, like on my own, left to myself, I pursue my kingdom. And left on your own, you pursue your kingdom. Your name, what you want out of life, your goals, aspirations. And the Lord said, you can try that, but it doesn't lead to life and to flourishing. And so he's inviting us to understand what Jesus, back in the book of Matthew, said as he started the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. There's that talk about the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do you get to be part of that? Understanding your poverty of spirit. You are spiritually, I am spiritually bankrupt I have nothing in my account except what that is what's been given to me by Jesus. We tend to think of ourselves as middle class in spirit. I know I'm not perfect, man. Yeah, I mess up. Want to tell me about it? No, no not really, but I, I mess up. But there's worse people. That sort of mindset or, or a, a lack of willingness to say, hey, how have I contributed to injustice? That's not a poverty of spirit. It's a pride and arrogance that keeps us from engaging in the kingdom of heaven, keeps us from seeing the kingdom of heaven advance. And so we need to close with this over and over again. As we talk through these things in this series, I hope you see this abundantly clear, clearly. Your need, my need for grace. And so God, yes, he calls us to this. He's asking us to be about justice and righteousness but God doesn't leave us on our own to figure that out. 
and God knows that we will fail. And if it was up to us to see the kingdom of heaven advance, like, okay, then it's just not going to. But it's Jesus and his work and his work through the spirit. And some way, somehow, he chooses misfits and broken people like you and me who are dialed into their brokenness, their poverty of spirits. I, I, don't, I don't even know why God chose me, but I'm so thankful that he did. And when that grips your heart, we begin to live lives of justice and righteousness. Those that understand their spiritual poverty always move towards those who are materially impoverished. Like, one of the ways that you know that God is at work in your life is seeing that desire for justice and righteousness grow. Again, not to make you feel guilty. There's gonna be people that are further along in that, but is there a heart toward that? So I'll close with this, God's provision, justice and righteousness in Jesus. Out of the book of Matthew, we get these words. For one, in Matthew chapter 12, in regards to justice, it speaks. It's these words of Isaiah 42 in reference to Jesus. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim mishpat. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Do you feel broken? Do you feel like the light is ready to be extinguished, right? Like God's disposition toward you is gentle and kind and he's moving toward you. Jesus is bringing about justice. He's bringing about right ordering. And while he invites you to do it and to help in that, he's also continuing to do that in your own life. That he's not given up on you, he's not given up on me, he's not given up on us, but he's inviting us into this life of justice. And it flows out of the righteousness that we have the perfect righteousness that, that is possessed solely by Jesus who gave it to us. And so one last passage in Matthew. Very early on in Jesus' life, he's baptized. In baptism, we tend to, right, for the forgiveness of sins. And John even says to him, like, wait, wait a minute, you should be baptizing me. Like, you're perfect, you're holy. You're the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is like, oh yeah, I am. And for that reason, I need to be baptized. Well, you don't have any sin. But it's this picture of substitution as he goes down into the water, this reminder that though he has no sins that need to be forgiven, he's going to be the one that brings about forgiveness of our sins. And so he says this. John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized, right? And here's Jesus' response. Allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. This sedekah, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. It's this foreshadowing of how we would become a righteous people who can bring about righteousness. It's because Jesus was substituted, that Jesus died in our place. He took our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion, our wickedness, the death that we deserved, and he died in our place. And that baptism was that reminder. Oh, you want to get in on this righteousness? You and I are dependent on him that's why Paul would say, now we're ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We get to be agents of reconciliation now. How? Because he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our new identity. That's our calling now. Agents of reconciliation 
agents in God's kingdom. We're gonna mess up, we're gonna fail, we're gonna continually need God's grace, and that's the best possible place to be. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue in our service. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for this commissioning that you've given to us. We thank you that you are doing the work of bringing about justice and righteousness. And we thank you that you are inviting us as the church to participate. And so, God, may the true gospel of Jesus fuel our pursuit of justice, of healing, of shalom, of righteousness. May it be just the overflow of hearts that are so thankful for what you've done. And God, we ask that you would use us for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.